Well, um, really excited to be back in Acts. It's uh, actually fitting that I got to preach last week in Acts because then it just keeps us right in the context. So if you would, um, please open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Particularly this morning, we'll be in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Acts 6, 1 to 8. Here's what I'm going to do this morning. Um, we got a little bit extra time. Tim bought me some time. So what I want to do is I'm going to read the passage. And by way of introduction, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to, for a moment, put on your ther- uh, hermeneutical cap, so the art of interpretation. And I, as I read this portion of Scripture and we've, in the book of Acts, I want you to be thinking about two questions. And when you're doing uh, interpreting narrative, you're trying to answer two questions. Essentially, why here did Luke... The, the, essentially the author here, inspired by the Spirit of the book of Acts, Acts and Luke, why did Luke include the narrative that we're in today, Acts 6, 1 to 8? And you can ask it backwards to help you answer the question. What would have been lost for the early church and for us had Luke not have included this narrative? Because all that really means, anytime we come to a portion of Scripture, all that matters, excuse me, is what did God mean to that author in that audience at that time? And if we get the significance of that, then we know what it means for us. That is essentially the art of interpretation. That protects us from error. So I'm going to read it, and I want you thinking about those two questions. Why would Luke include this inspired by the Spirit? And what would have been missing had he not? Because we've been on this essentially this this incredible journey so far through the book of Acts and then it almost seems like Luke pulls the car over a little bit, right? And starts to talk about deacons and distraction and things that may not seem as significant when we just come out of apostles being beaten within an inch of their life, Ananias and Sapphira, all these incredible events and then this. And remember, Luke doesn't record everything that happens throughout the early church. He picks certain narratives that he thinks are most crucial for us to know. And so this is one of them. So let me read it with those questions in mind. I'm going to read Acts 6, 1 through verse 8. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number. Now, if you remember, just turn back, just to you know what's going on there. Chapter 5. Verse 40 to 42, remember, the apostles were before the Sanhedrin. They would not relent. They held to their convictions. Verse 40, they were flogged, beaten within an inch of their life. Then they got up before the council that told them, stop preaching. And what happened? They rejoiced. Verse 41, they marveled that God would consider them worthy to suffer for His name. Verse 42, they went on preaching. Then chapter 6, verse 1, God continued to save people. That's where we're at. Now, Now at this time, as the apostles are preaching and the church is growing and God is saving people, notice, the disciples were increasing in number. But, you could say, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews or the Palestinian Jews. Why? Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So, in response to that, the twelve summoned the congregation of disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and wisdom, 
whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This statement, a statement that was just said by the apostles, found approval with the whole congregation, all that was gathered there. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorius, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenasos, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, and they were brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Verse 7, And the word of God kept spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Stop there. So why did Luke include this narrative, beloved? What do you think? And what would the early church have missed and what would we miss were a narrative like this not included? What do you guys think? You can answer. It's wide open. Yeah, Alec. For leaders to delegate to younger men forms of leadership at a younger age so that way they can see the need to step up and continue to grow in their own faith, especially in the church and serving so that's certainly one principle being taught here. The, the importance of sharing ministry. That's true. That's one thing. Definitely. Yep. May not be the main thing, but it's definitely one point. Yep. Yeah, Ian. We wouldn't necessarily know uh, where the office of the came from. Yeah, we're going to look at that today. So you've got the word, the, the verb... Uh, diakonos or diakoneo which is the verb for to serve which turns into diakonos which is the word we get deacon the noun yeah so we get a little bit of a picture of the office of a deacon yep that's that's another point found here yeah what else what's the main point here Did you guys hear that? Yep. There's lots of points in here. There's discipleship in here. There's shared ministry in here. There's the, the office of deacon showing up in here. We're going to see character qualities of these men. But you nailed it, Etsy. <clears throat> you have to ask yourself when you come to a narrative, what is the single main idea that that author wants me to take from this and all of the else becomes supplemental and dependent upon that? And it's this, that the Word of God must remain the priority in the church. And see, what you said there is the importance of, in light of all these other needs that may arise, the Word of God still has to remain supreme and the premier task of the church. And beloved, this is so, so crucial. Because if you think about it, the first internal threat to the church came how? By Ananias and Sapphira. There was evil that was introduced to the church that was a threat to the body. There was evil circumstances that brought a threat. 
Now, we don't have evil bringing a threat. We actually have something very good happening. The church is being filled up with all types of believers. The church is being full of new converts. Notice verse 1. The disciples were increasing in number. And that include men, women, probably some, some younger, maybe even in the teen years, and these widows. These were believers in the church that were being saved. And so this we might call second internal threat. Think about this. It comes not as a result of bad circumstances, but good circumstances. There was more needs to meet than they could even tend to, and I'll explain that in a moment. But the larger idea that Etsy brought up was there is a, a potential here for the church to get distracted from her mission, for her to lose focus on what God wants her to be focusing on. In fact, let me just frame it up for you and then I'll apply it to what Etsy said and I'll apply it for us today. Because if we're saying, why do we need a passage like this, beloved? Because sometimes what Satan can use to hurt the church is not only a bad season, but a great season. A good season. I feel like that in this room. I feel like that at GIBC. God is adding so many people and there's so many needs to meet that it's easy to get distracted from keeping the main thing the main thing. Sometimes you can do a good thing at the cost of the main thing and you've drifted. That's the point here. He does not want the early church drifting from the priority of the ministry of truth. So let's notice the occasion that brought this on. And and you'll need some background here about these comments. Notice... I'm going to give you the background, the occasion, then we'll give you an outline to walk through. But notice this. Now at this time, verse 6, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint. Now it's interesting when you see that, that word complaint there, he doesn't say whether it was good or whether it was bad, but the word group is where we get like Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or murmuring. It's the word to talk about disputing or fighting. So there was a conflict that arose in the church, but the conflict wasn't necessarily because of something bad. It was actually good things were happening, but they could not get to the needs. Notice, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews. I'll explain them in a moment. Against the native Hebrews. Why? What was the complaint? Because their widows, these converts, these women that were being added to the church, the believers were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, it may be hard for us in our context to understand what's going on, but you've got mass conversions, you've got abject poverty in a lot of places around Jerusalem, and who would be the least likely to be able to fend for themselves? A widow. The widows. And so what you have here is you have a need to get organized to care for these widows that are being added to the church, but you notice... The, the Palestinian Jews, or notice it says the native Hebrews, they're the ones that are supposed to give oversight to this. And notice the Hellenistic Jews, those are the Greek-speaking Jews, I'll talk about in a moment, they're the ones that are upset. Now you think about, this is probably a pretty tense scene. Just imagine that some of those maybe Hellenistic Jews, these Greek-speaking Jews, I'll talk about in a moment, what if it was their mom who was a widow? And they're going, hey, my mom's part of the church. She's a widow. Why isn't she being fed? Because she's a Hellenistic Jew when all of the native uh, Hebrew Jewish women are being served. Was it a simple oversight? We don't know. Was it 
Was it particular because they were being biased? There was prejudice there? We don't ultimately know. We know there was a problem, and here's what it was. You've got Hellenistic Jews, which are Greek-speaking Jews. Their primary language was Greek, and they also spoke a little bit of Aramaic. So this is your Hellenistic Jew. They're over here. The primary way they communicated was Greek. Most of your, the, uh, the apostles knew Greek as well. It was the primary trading language. But then you had the native Hebrews, the Palestinian Jews that lived in Jerusalem. Their primary dialect was Aramaic or Hebrew, and they knew a little bit of Greek. So you've got this group over here of native Jewish, we'll say this was their home, and then you've got those that have transplanted in over time that have come from places like Greece and other places. So what separated these two groups, listen, was not ethnicity but language. You say, well, how do we have Jews that speak different dialects? Well, remember, 720, you've got to do a little history lesson. 722, Assyria did what to 10 of the tribes? Anybody remember? took them into captivity and then dispersed them. Assyria didn't keep them together. They spread out the Jews all over Asia Minor, all over the place, all the way into the Greek Isles. So you had Jews by ethnicity being spread out. But what happened? They'd be raised there. They'd learn different dialects there. They'd still have their Jewish heritage, but they'd primarily speak Greek. But then you've got the Jews in Jerusalem that are natives. Probably most of them came from... Um, 586 when Babylonian Babylonia captured excuse me the other remaining two tribes and what did they do they didn't spread them out they kept them together that's like Ezra and Nehemiah those types of things so you've got this conflict now you've got the the native Jews to the land who are supposedly neglecting the Greek speaking widows this was a major threat to the first church this would have been a significant event there was a legitimate need that needed to be met so there's the complaint. That's why you see the dispute. So when you see a dispute break out, that's what's going on here. But beloved, there's an interesting comment here that gives us insight to the actual greater point of the text. It's not that they didn't need to care for these Greek-speaking um, widows in the church. The greater issue was is that if... The disciples, the apostles, would have been called into that large administrative task. They could have done a good thing at the cost of the ultimate need for the church, which is feeding them the Word of God. Think about it. They could have went and fed all of the widows while the church remained spiritually now malnourished because they did not have truth. That was a serious threat to the church. Notice what Peter probably is represented in verse 2. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable. Desirable there. It's not most exceptional. It's not most wise. It's not most profitable. It's not going to be for the greatest good. For Notice, just look at it closely. For us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables, serve the widows. Therefore, in light of the fact that we cannot, the church cannot afford for us to neglect Scripture in their life, let's mark out these other men, seven here, let's look at their character, verse 3, and then let's appoint them to take care of the task. Because notice verse 4, but we, while they carry out that administrative function, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. You don't want to miss this. Here's what's being said. It is not best for us to serve tables when our ultimate job is to serve the Word. You say, I don't see 
Maybe you say, I don't see the full significance of why that'd be such a big deal. Well, let me write out if Peter said it differently. And let me see if you think this would be a big deal. Let's imagine Peter and the apostles received that grumbling. And they, instead of saying, we're going to appoint people to take care of that, but we need to stay focused on the priority for the church. Let's say they said this instead. Oh, wow. We have widows who are being saved from the more unruched people group of the Hellenistic Jews. And we are not meeting their physical needs. Okay, man, that's it. We are failing as leaders. Thank you to all that brought this to us. We will take care of it. And then Peter looked at the other apostles and said, Men, I know we've been called to feed, lead, and protect the church and give them the word of God, but people in our congregation are physically starving. How can we study the word when there are people that are not even having enough actual food? Let's go meet that need. You hear the problem, don't you? All of a sudden, a slight mission drift, a slight distraction could pull the church off of her mission. That is the threat in this passage. A subtle mission drift to pull the apostles away and the congregation remains malnourished. And beloved, as Etsy said earlier, let's back up. This is applying to the church. But we're being told today something different a lot of the time, aren't we? We're being told that the mission of the church is to go redeem the culture. Redeem humanity. Go into West Palm Beach. Go into New York and feed and take care of the impoverished and the hurting in society. And that's the mission of the church. Reach West Palm. Reach New York. Be the hands and feet of Jesus, you read. I think about that and I was thinking this week, I'm thinking, I'm just, we're just here in a little church at Grace Emmanuel with our leaders and our needs here. I'm thinking, who's meeting the needs of their church while they're meeting the needs of the city? <laughs> Hello? Okay, go beyond the church walls where there's all kinds of needs and go care for all the lost people in the, cultural, in the culture while the church starts suffering where there's needs that you're commanded by God to meet. You understand, we're going out for an opportunity while neglecting our obligation. That's a supplemental opportunity. The social gospel movement today, they're not reading their Bibles, but they use Jesus' platitudes to justify the trip. Oh, we need to go meet people. At the neglect of the ministry of the Word, beloved. You've got to understand something. Those people that get sent out, think about this. If they haven't been equipped by the ministry of the Word, and they're sent out to meet social needs, you just sent out an army of unequipped people to take on false doctrine and to not be seduced by the world. I've lost friends to apostasy to this movement. We're being told that we need to meet the temporary needs of the lost society at the costly price of neglecting the ministry of the Word. Any church that does that has drifted from her mission. Do you know, what the, you know that you can read the book of Acts? If you pick up Acts, I, go ahead and read it. It's the early church. Read it a hundred times. Read it a thousand times. You know what you won't find? A single time that the church neglects her mission of equipping the saints for the, for the building them up and then scattering them to go evangelize. You won't see soup kitchens. You won't see social gospel. You won't see any of those things. Not that those aren't legitimate needs that we'd love to care for, but they're never to be neglected at the priority of equipping God's people and then sending them out to preach. The gather and scatter. That's what you'll read in Acts. Believers are gathered and then they scattered. So that's a larger implication but here, if that's a threat now, even to the larger implication, here the threat was even happening in good ways. Actual needs that needed to be met. So that's an implication. Let's draw it back in. So here will be our notes. We're just going to walk through 
the rest of this, just a couple points here. I think it'll be helpful now that we've framed up the occasion. Here's the question I'm going to ask, and then I'm going to let the text answer it. Ready? What does a true church do in order to prioritize the ministry of the word and avoid mission drift? What does a true church do to prioritize the ministry of the word and avoid mission drift? If what I stated is what lots of churches are doing, we have the same heart as them. The same human nature. And frankly, it's a lot easier to go to a soup kitchen than preach the gospel to someone. They hug you on one of them and the other one they might get offended at you. The drift is easy because the heart's vulnerable to that. So, what does a true church do in order to prioritize the ministry of the word and avoid the mission drift? One, and we'll see this in a moment, when needs arise, they unify to protect the ministry of the word. When needs arise, they unify to protect the ministry of the word. And two, they choose able men to meet needs in order to free up shepherds so they can minister the word. The result, the whole church witnesses the power of the word. So let's look at it. What does a true church do? One, when needs arise, they unify to protect the ministry of the word. Notice verse 2. So the twelve, some in the congregation, disciples, and said, We cannot go and serve those widows, though we'd love to do it, at the neglect of serving you your soul food. Right? Then verse 3, they select men. Verse 4, he says, We'll devote ourselves to the ministry of the word, which is we'll agonize to bring the truth. And then look at verse 5. Unity is found. This statement found approval with who? The whole congregation. And they chose able men. What's happening there, beloved? You've got the apostles coming before the church saying, there's a legitimate need, let's meet it. But then everyone agrees, you men cannot go meet that need if it's going to cost you preparing the word to serve it to us. So we will unify around the fact that we need to meet those needs without stealing your time. We will find men that are not called to feed, lead, and protect, that are able men to take care of that so that you can do your job of feeding, leading, and protecting us. And then notice verse 5 again. Look at it. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. What does that mean, beloved? What's that mean for you and I? This church was jealous to protect raising up the ministry of the word on every front. And they didn't want anything to distract or have their shepherds deviate from keeping the truth at its highest level. It's not that the apostles couldn't have done this, right? They could have done this, and in fact, they probably would have had a heart to do it. If no one else is going to meet the need, we would have to meet the need. It's a legitimate need. We need to take care of these women. They're hurting. We need to feed them. Of course we do. But if it costs us the word, the price tag is far too great. So what did everyone unify on the, that what needs to happen? We're going to send out men to go meet the need. But notice, everyone also agreed that notice, the apostles need to devote themselves to two things. Look at it. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. Two areas. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. Devotion, guys. This isn't casual. This isn't slow. This isn't something passive. Everyone agreed that the men that lead and feed and protect the flock need to have time allocated so that they can handle these tasks with the utmost integrity. Let me tell you an example of how this plays out even in my life here at our church. It's with Mike Canfield. I can't tell you how many times over the years that some set of needs or set of tasks will start to fall upon my plate that I'm feeling like I need to take care of or there's something that arises and it's starting to maybe start to impact my sermon prep and my preparation and Mike will say to me Darren don't come down from the wall 
How many times have you said that to me? Darren, don't come down from the wall. What does he mean? Well, Nehemiah and Sanballat, remember that? Way back, Ezra, Nehemiah, their time. Nehemiah, Sanballat had a little bit of a conflict. Nehemiah was what? Called to do what? Build. Do you guys remember? What was Nehemiah's job? And what was Sanballat, the Samaritan, always trying to get him to do? come down from the wall and get caught in all these disputes that would take him away from his task God had given him to build the wall for the people of the Jewish nation. Well, in the same way, Mike will tell me, Darren, don't come down from the wall with all these other things. Stay up there. And what he's saying is, stay on task to prayer and ministry of the Word. People need to be fed and led and protected. And we've chosen you to be able to do that. So you stay over there. Stay in your office. I know it's exhausting and labor-intensive and lonely. (laughs) It is. You spend 30 hours alone every week by yourself. It's lonely business. But it's a good business and it's a labor-intensive task. And Mike and I are unified as leaders that we must lift up the Word of God. This is what men do that want to protect the church. This is what a church does that wants to protect the men so that they can be faithful to this task. That's why I said, Grandma, help me with that. She may not be the deacons that are coming up here, but she was freeing me up to be able to feed you this morning. So you think about it. Every small task, beloved, that you take part in that alleviates burden from the shepherds, it's administrative that anyone can do, but they would do if no one else does, and you free them up, if souls get ministered to by the truth, you were part of keeping the Word at the highest level. Think about that. A church that has shared responsibility, they're not just doing it because, oh, I want to meet these social needs and take care of the widows. They're saying, if I do this, it frees them up. And so when it comes Sunday and we can be fed, we will have protected their time so they can deliver. It's an interesting thought for us to think about. Notice what else, though. I'm going to get back to the word, but notice what else. They were devoted to prayer. Or the Greek actually reads with a definite article. It reads, devoting ourselves to ministry and the prayer. That is to say this, beloved, a certain type of prayer. A certain quality of prayer. What type of prayer? Not just individual. I mean, when you're sermon prepping and you're studying the Word, our elders and our leaders and they're prepping, you're praying and you're agonizing personally, thinking, Lord, as a preacher, if, I, if you could just help me deliver something, clear all this up in my mind so I could give something profitable to your people with your Word this week. Those kind of prayers go up. But this is probably even speaking also of corporate prayer, the quality of prayer, where the men gather, the elders and the leaders and the shepherds gather together, and you know what they pray for? That the Spirit would attend the Word so it would work in people's lives. Because the whole point of this passage is protect the primary focus of the church, which is delivering truth. And so they pray, God, protect your Word, use your Word, shape your people, insert it in people's hearts so their lives are changed. Do you know that in this room... You probably get prayed for at least a half a dozen times a week with this type of prayer. On Sunday morning, I just left a prayer for 30 minutes where we were all praying for you. Praying prayers like, Lord, when men are devoting themselves to the Word, please have the Word implanted in people's hearts. Lord, take your Word and expose the hypocrites. Lord, take your Word and encourage the faint-hearted. Lord, take your Word and strengthen those that are striving. You get prayed for wherever you're at spiritually, constantly. On Thursday, when we go meet with our leaders, we're praying that the Word would do its work. Tuesday at staff meeting, we pray that the Word would do its work. This is why men are freed up to do this, so they can take large allotments of time to pray that the Word would penetrate into all of our hearts. 
man, no wonder this church was unified and said, we must protect that. It's crucial that the men have time to pray and to get ready to hand people truth with the highest level of efficiency. Now, some of you may be saying, that's it. There we go. I am never calling a pastor in this church again. I am never calling an elder in this church again. I am never bothering them again. I am not about to be one that gets in the way of lifting up the word. I don't want to be part of the distraction. Let me ask you something. Is the ministry of the word only from the pulpit? No. No. The job of godly shepherds and leaders is to deliver the word to you in discipleship, in counseling, in shepherding, in conflict resolution, in fighting against error, and in the pulpit. And certain men are picked out by the church where they're going to need more time to do that. But all of the leaders of the church are called to be able to take that word and apply it. But let me, let me give you one caution. Every bit of good counsel you've probably ever given, every bit of discipleship that's impacted your life, every Q&A where something's profitable comes out, every sideways hall conversation where some shepherd brings the word, it's the perfect bit of truth at the perfect moment for you, that didn't come from nothing. That came from a lot of time alone with their Bible and in prayer, equipping themselves so they're ready for those providential moments to minister the word. This is why this church said we must not bog them down in administrative tasks so that they can be ready to deliver to us that way. You know, if you've ever come to someone around here, a pastor, an elder, and said some administrative task, hey, I'll take that for you. And they go, oh, thank you. And you say, what's the big deal? I was just going to you know, run the stuff over to the kitchen that they were going to run over and I took it from them so they could leave. And they go, thank you so much. That's such a help. If it's a preacher, here's what they're thinking. Oh, that's like 12 minutes back in sermon prep. And if someone says, I'll take, hey, how about I take this particular thing for you and free you up for a couple hours? They're going, oh, thank you, Lord. There's a couple more hours of sleep that I got back and a little more so I could prepare the word to deliver a couple times this week. You realize that a church that meets these types of needs is supporting lifting up the priority of the word. Isn't that sweet? That's a sweet thing to think about. Insights don't come randomly. They come by time and conviction. And I want to read you something. My wife, I'm going to just spend a little time on an extended quote. Who knows if I'll get through the rest of my sermon, but this quote's worth it. When I was in seminary, my wife, and this will be good for those of you that are new, she gave me a, a framed quote that says, dedicated to a faithful pastor in training from his wife. Framed it and put it on my wall in my office. This quote I'm about to read was read here 18 years ago by Lance Quinn the morning he installed our pastor Jerry Rag into this church as our shepherd. And Lance Quinn gave a charge to the congregation about how they ought to care for Jerry with this principle. Protecting him, looking out for him, and making sure he keeps himself in the study so he can deliver the truth. And he read this quote to our congregation 18 years ago. It sits in my office, and every time I start to get restless sitting in the seat, I'll sometimes stand up and just read this quote and think about all of you because of this principle. Here's what a faithful church, it's an anonymous letter to a pastor, and here's what they tell him. Ready? Fling him into his office. Tear the office sign from the door and nail on the sign, study. 
Take him off the mailing list. Lock him up with his books and his typewriter and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before texts and broken hearts and the flocks of the lives of the superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in our sure-fitted communities who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all night through and let him come only when he is bruised and beaten so that he can be a blessing. Shut his mouth forever spouting remarks and stop his tongue forever tripping lightly over non-essential things. Require him to have something to say before he dares break silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God. And make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Put water in his gas tank. Give him a Bible and tie him to a pulpit. And make him preach the word of the living God. Test him, quiz him, examine him, humiliate him for the ignorance of things divine that he does not know. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances and batting averages and politics and fighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. (laughs) That would be frustrating. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him night and day. Sir, we would see Jesus. When at long last he dares to assay the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not, then dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning paper and digest the television commentaries and think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community's weary drives and bless the sordid baked potatoes and green beans and infinitum better than he can. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up, worn and forlorn, and say, Thus saith the Lord. Break him across the board of ill-gotten popularity. Smack him hard with his own prestige. Corner him with questions about God. Cover him up with demands for celestial wisdom. And give him no escape until his back is against the wall of the Word. Let him be totally ignorant of the downstreet gossip, but give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sum it up, and come at last to speak it backwards and forwards until all he says about rings with truth of eternity. And when he's burned out by the flaming word, when he's consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through him, and when he's privileged to translate the truth of God to men, finally transferred from earth to heaven, then listen to this. Then bear him away gently and blow a muted trumpet and lay him down softly. Place a two-edged sword in his coffin and raise the tomb triumphant. For he was a brave soldier of the word and ere he died, he had become a man of God. Wow. End quote. You know why (laughs) men in our church take the word so seriously? Because of that. And you know why it's so important to train and network and organize and facilitate all the ministry needs to protect that? Is that humbling? That's quite a quote, isn't it? 
I've wanted to put it in a sermon for years, and the Lord finally gave me this opportunity. <laughs> and you guys can go ahead and just treat me that way. 18 years ago, they said to our pastor, Mike, he's done it, hasn't he? 18 years, he's locked himself away 30 plus hours a week to stand and deliver. We are a blessed people. You find all kinds of pastors that can play games with the culture. They can wax eloquent on politics, whatever it is. Our pastor has stood and delivered for 18 years to our people and shepherded them and raised up a group of elders that prioritized the word. This is why we don't mess around with the social gospel in this church. This is why we don't mess around in drifting into the culture. This is why fads come and go and they don't bother us. Because we don't drift from Acts 6 ministry. To drift from that is to say to Jesus, ah, that's a nice way you did it here, but we've got a better version. Sorry. That's what we've done. Praise the Lord that you wandered into a church that thinks this way. You are protected by that. You scorn that, you chafe against that, there'll be a price tag. So that's the first point. When needs arise, they unify to protect the ministry of the Word. This is why you all should be actively looking for ways to serve and meet needs and facilitate ministry. This is why you're either unsaved or a disobedient Christian if you're not a part of a healthy local church using your gifts coming under leadership. Because you can't be a part of that if you're on the fringe. You can't support ministry that way. Are the apostles better than other men? Of course not. Does it sound like from that quote, we think we're better than other men, men that are called to be elders and leaders? Of course not. We just know we've been tapped for a task that we cannot deviate from. And the early church knew if these men drift, how will we defend ourselves from false doctrine? What happens when heresy comes into the church? What happens when needs arise? What will we do to have leadership if these men drift? They must not. So what did they do? We'll be able to finish this out. Notice, they chose able men to meet the needs. Look back at verse 3. That's your second way we answer the question. What does a faithful church do when they have that conviction to protect the ministry of the Word? They choose able men. Notice verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select seven men. We don't know why seven men. Maybe it's because that really met the need. But what I want you to notice here, beloved, is of these prototypical deacons, these men that were chosen were not chosen ultimately because their pedigree, though all of them were from Greek origin, so they could care for the Hellenistic Jews. But what's the premium here, beloved, is notice, select from you, verse 3, seven men who had three qualities. Notice them. Good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. You know that those qualities right there, a man of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom, that's what they were looking for across the whole congregation when they were thinking about men who had the character and the convictions that other people could look to as an example who, listen, the apostles could trust, could carry out that need, and it wouldn't bring more burden back to them. The apostles knew if we send those kind of men, it's done. But you know what that means by implication, men? Any degree of spiritual leadership, whether you're a deacon or not, comes through this type of character. These three qualities, good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom, these become premiums and prerequisites for spiritual influence, whether you're a boyfriend, whether you're a husband, or whether you're a deacon. And you ladies, you say, well, what about me? Well, you support that kind of ministry, you pray for those kind of men, and you encourage when you see godly character like that. That's why I love the Expositor Seminary. Because those type of men, where are they found here? Where are they looking? Did they go look in the culture? Did they go to an entree, entree leadership conference? <laughs> Did they go try and find him? The guy that read six leadership books that had his PhD? No. Godly 
character in the church that was measured and observable by all the congregation. The congregation raised them up. Send us men. They said, these are the seven. How do we know? The congregation. Does that say the college and career thought they were this way? The congregation. They were the same around older men, older women, their peers, godly men, and widows. They were known in the congregation. This was their reputation. The premium here is character. I love it when guys come here and they say, Darren, I'm so excited about ministry. I can't wait. I want to get after it. I want leadership. I say, great. You will demonstrate that by how you serve the church. And not just your peer group where it's convenient or where you could benefit. The whole church was raising them up. Beware of men that only serve in certain pockets where it could benefit them, but don't serve the whole church. So men, are you this? Men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Would that describe you? Would people come and say, whether he's a deacon or not, this man, I know him this way. Well, let's see what that means. What's it mean to be a man of good reputation in the church? Good reputation. You know what the word is? Martyreo. To witness. A martyr. It's the word used for someone that testifies. What's testifying here? Why do they use the term good reputation? His life. Everything he does and the way he conducts himself, the people in the church can, can watch and it's witnessed and observable that this man is noble and godly. You know what that doesn't mean? People are worried about him. They're wondering about him. He's erratic. He's inconsistent. He's troubled. He seems always floating around, never really sure how he should think about things. This man is stable and steady and servant-minded. He's a witness. His life testifies to godliness and conviction and character. He's a man of integrity. You know what men like this are? A man of good reputation before the church, is he hidden? Do people have to wonder about him? Do people go, how's that person doing? I don't know. Do you? No. He's known. The idea here is they called him out and the congregation said, that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy. These are the men that could carry out that task. And we're confident if we send them, they'll protect your time so that you men can be ready to deliver the word. We're only picking the finest men. They're known in the church. Leaders are trained in the church. Leaders are qualified in the church. And leaders are identified in the church. And leaders are affirmed in the church. These men had a godly reputation. And notice, among all, everybody, every group, across the spectrum, they were known. So guys, a good reputation. Next, they were full of the Spirit. Notice, full of the Spirit. Literally, their life was full of the Spirit. What does that mean? Power. That means power. It obviously goes into the previous passage, but they weren't weak men. They were men that were strong in what they believed. They were convinced about the truth and power over what? Power over sin, beloved. Their lives were known as holy. This is why John Anderson's great line, usefulness is holiness. You want to be useful, you be holy. These men were known by holy lives. You know what that means? They weren't passive, they were deliberate. They didn't drift, they strived. They didn't react, they were proactive. These men's lives were full of spirit-restrained power and proactive servant-mindedness of the church. No wonder they're saying, I can trust him. We give him a task. Think about administering. There's some probably close to 20,000 people in the church now. That's a whole lot of widows probably in that that needed to be fed. We can trust these men. We give them a task, they run with it. They're like the easy button. We hit it and they're gone. We can trust them. We don't have to worry what happens when we send them off in a task. They're going to be faithful. They're going to be able. They're going to see it through to completion. Men, are you that way? I mean, seriously, if someone gives you a task and they go, oh, out of my mind, it's done. 
full of a powerful life. What else does the Spirit mean? Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Not in perfection, but they were known by this. And certainly that would involve when they weren't this, they were repenting, owning it, wanting to strive. So they had a reputation, full of the Spirit, and look at this, full of wisdom. A pattern of life. What is wisdom, beloved? To fear God, Proverbs 1.7. So these men feared God, they were known for it. And what is wisdom? To wisely apply the truth. That means those, these men knew what, guys? Their Bibles. They had the ability to know truth and apply it in the moment in ways that were helpful to people. This is different from an elder. It's not saying they're apt to teach. These were men that just knew truth and could apply it in ways that helped people. They were full of conviction and wisdom. They knew the Word. They knew how to apply it. Of course, when you're caring for those widows, they were going to need truth too, right? So you need someone that knew the Word that could encourage them in their difficult state and their discouragement. There's three qualities, guys. Look at them again. Good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of power, and full of wisdom. You want to find guys in the church that this is a summation of maybe 2 Timothy 2.2, faithful and able. These are the men you had ministry to. These are the men you love to share ministry with because you can trust they will carry things out. Are you men that? And if you're not, there's your, there's your benchmark to strive for. That kind of life. And you know what? It becomes known among the church. Godly people recognize it. You don't project yourself to do it. You just live this way for the glory of God and godly people say, wow, he's operating in every way, full of wisdom, a good reputation, full of the Spirit. He knows his Bible. We should hand that guy more ministry. Some people in the church come in and say, I don't want to live a holy life. I'll live how I want. I'm going to be full of rebellion. But can you please give me opportunities to serve? It's just pride. It's just ambition. Godly men live this way and other godly men hand them responsibility. Notice the men really quickly. Verse 5. Statement found approval of the whole congregation. The two men that are most notable here, really, we read the list earlier, are Philip, or there's probably three really, Philip, Stephen, and Nicholas. Philip, where's Philip show up, beloved? Anybody remember? Who's he, who's he evangelist to? The eunuch. So Philip's going to show up again as this great evangelist. Stephen's going to show up for like the next 10 weeks. We'll be studying Stephen after his two-hour-long sermon, which is going to be awesome in the coming weeks, and then he's going to be killed. But there's one more here, Nicholas. Notice him in the list, Nicholas. Revelation 2.6 talks about the apostate Nicolaitans. Many scholars think that the Nicolaitans came from Nicholas. Well, right here, this man is marked out as this godly man. And if the apostate Nicolaitans that were trying to infect the churches some 60 years later or so come from him, that means in subsequent generations, someone under Nicholas's discipleship defected. <laughs> That's sad. So these men are noble. They're godly. They're full of the Spirit. They have a good reputation. They're men that were handed ministry. What's the result, beloved, of this type of church? A church that prioritizes the ministry of the Word and avoids mission drift. When needs arise, they unify to protect them. They choose men with proven character. And then look at the result, beloved. The whole church witnesses the power of the ministry of the Word. Notice verse 7. The Word of God did what? Kept on spreading. The social gospel kept spreading. Caring for the people in society kept spreading. What kept spreading? 
When they exalted the word at the highest level, God used his word to draw his people. Notice the bookends. We protect the word. We look out for the word. We lift up the word. We assimilate people so that we can protect the priority of it. And then what does God do with a church that, that lifts up the word that well? He just spreads his gospel all over when his word is used that way. Notice it. The word of God kept growing and spreading. And notice... A church that lives like this, they may spin out the hanger-oners. The hypocrites should hopefully leave if they don't want the truth. But people that love the truth, like most of the people in this room, notice, they come. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. God kept saving more people through His church. And then, a statement you may have overread that should probably just shock us. Notice, the power of the word showed up in verse 7. And a great many of the priests what? were becoming obedient to the faith. What's obedient to the faith mean? That's true conversion. It was demonstrated by an obedient life. That's how they knew. Do you realize that the, the point that Luke's making is amazing? Think about this. The emphasis is on the word, the power of the word, protect the word, God will use his word, and God will take his word from churches that lift it up that way and even penetrate the hearts of the most hard-hearted, obstinate people on the planet. What do we say? Oh, there's these really unreached Muslim people. Let's kind of doctor up our ministry and do it a little bit different, have an insider movement and soften it. Then maybe we can penetrate the hard heart. Or how are we going to reach the disenfranchised in society? We're going to need to change our method. Luke's saying, don't do that. If you stick to the word this way, even the priests, those that would have been most obstinate, most aggressive, most hostile to the disciples, it doesn't just say some. Look what it says. Many were being saved. When you stick to the word this way and you lift it up, God will take it. And Luke is saying, he'll even go into the hardest, black, dead heart that hates the gospel. And you don't have to change anything and God will use it and make their dead heart live. That's his point. That's so encouraging. Even the priests. They say there were some 8,000 priests at that time. God was saving many of them. Could you imagine the Sanhedrin showing up to temple worship and finding out that you had a, a priest that was supposed to represent the Levites now proclaiming Jesus as Messiah? Oh man, that would have been a good scene. Many. And then it ends with Stephen being full of power and grace. We'll see him in the coming weeks. Our time's gone, beloved. Let me just review. How do you know it's a true church that lives this way? They unify to protect the ministry of the Word. They find those that can serve and meet the needs and tasks so that the shepherds can feed and lead and protect. So they allocate resources to meet needs. And three, they witness the power of the Word. You want to know you're at a true church? You meet people regularly that are being absolutely devastated, encouraged, impacted by truth. Not by programs, not by cheesy stuff, by the Word. That's what they were witnessing. And they knew God must be among us because look at what He's doing. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this morning. Thanks for this great passage. Just a simple passage that at first when we read it in the book of Acts, we, we may even wonder, what is your ultimate point? But as my brother mentioned earlier, Lord, it is you do not want this church to fall victim to a drift from prioritizing truth. Lord, I pray that Grace Emmanuel would be a loving church, be a gracious church, a sympathetic church to those that are hurting and as just like these widows, that we would not neglect a single need, 
but we would never deviate and imagine that you will continue to build and bless our ministry like you have for the last 18 years if we deviate from the commitment to prioritize the Word of God. It must remain the authority. Keep us, Lord, from ever being those in our hearts that contribute to any drift. And may we, as the leaders here at this church, continue to stay on task with this, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Thanks.